You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Globalization, the flagship digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite an expert for a conversation relating to their field of study or experience and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. Rosine Sally is Associate Professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and Chairman of the Institute of Policy Studies, the main economic policy think tank in his native Sri Lanka. His research and teaching focuses on global trade policy and Asia in the world economy. He has also written on the history of economic ideas, especially the theory of commercial policy. What do people mean when they say the Asian economic miracle? What does that mean? Yeah, it's basically the spectacular economic growth that much of Asia has had since the 1950s. And it's catch-up growth. So we have countries that started dirt poor. Some of them destroyed during the war, like Japan, and then Korea during the Korean War. And they've risen, some of them, as Lee Kuan Yew put it in his memoirs, from third world to first, like Singapore, like South Korea, like Japan. Others from dirt poor to somewhat less poor, like India and Vietnam more recently. And some of them from dirt poor to be middle-income countries, Mm -hmm. China, Malaysia, Thailand, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's the Asian economic miracle over a period of, I'd say, 50 to 60 years. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's right to call it a miracle? Or since you said it's catch-up growth, is this something that was bound to happen one way or another? It's neither a miracle in terms of something that's just happened out of the blue. It's not been preordained, not automatic. It has been man-made. So it's it's a result of, of good conditions. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think I would point to two main enabling conditions. One is that governments that in countries that have had this kind of miracle growth, as it were, have got the basics right. The World Bank did a big report on the East Asian miracle in 1993, studying the East Asian tigers. And they, their soundbite for it was getting the basics right. What does that mean? Firstly, you need political stability. Otherwise, nothing beneficial happens. Secondly, you need reasonable fiscal and monetary stability. You need to be open to international trade. So trade becomes an engine of growth. You need to roll out your hard infrastructure, roads, ports, railways, airports, You need to improve education, starting with primary and uh, secondary education. So those are the basics, Mm -hmm. and these countries got them more or less right. The second enabling condition is to really have a, a propitious set of external conditions. So you need regional and global peace, more or less, and you need a stable and open world economy with uh, the free flow of goods, services, people to some extent, and and capital. So I think those were the main enabling conditions for this Asian economic miracle. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that that uh, report was in 1993. Mm. After the 1997 Asian economic crisis, was that re-evaluated at all? Sure. It was re-evaluated straight after the report came out. Mm -hmm. There were some so-called revisionists who argued that the report didn't give nearly enough attention to successful industrial policies in Japan and South Korea, Taiwan in particular, where governments targeted particular sectors for 
global success, mm-hmm. created national champions. That's contested. Okay. We can have uh, you know, a pretty nuanced argument about that. I think it's getting the basics right that was the most important. Mm-hmm. Even after the Asian crisis, the fact was the, the Asian crisis, which was severe for some countries in East Asia, they took pretty bitter medicine. Mm-hmm. And they recovered pretty quickly right? and got back on track within a matter of two plus years. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about the poor Asian countries, the middle income Asian countries and the the rich Asian countries, does that rank them to the degree that they got those basics right? Yes. So all of them need to get the basics right. Mm -hmm. But once you get beyond a certain stage, it gets much more complicated. Okay. So uh, I make this distinction between poor, middle, and rich Asia really to differentiate Asia because Asia is just so huge, diverse, and complicated. It's impossible to make a simple generalization about the whole of Asia. But I think one can make some middle-range generalizations about different parts of Asia at different levels of development. Okay. And each has different sets of challenges. Uh, would you like to talk about the kind of different sets of challenges? Go, sure. Go through each well, one? I mean, it's, it's simplest to start with poor Asia. Okay. So what are we talking about? The World Bank defines these countries as having per capita income of between zero and $4,000 per capita uh, a year. If it's between zero and 1,000, they're really very poor. Mm-hmm. Those are least developed countries. Right. There are only three left in Asia, which is a testament of this economic miracle. Mm -hmm. That's Afghanistan, Nepal, and North Korea. There are others. The World Bank categorizes them perhaps somewhat misleadingly as lower middle income. They're Mm -hmm. still poor. Right. With incomes per capita anywhere between 1,000 and 4,000 that have got out of being dirt poor. They're less poor. Mm -hmm. But as I said, they're still poor. So, And here we're talking of quite a big bunch of Asia. So it's India, mm-hmm. uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the poorer countries of ASEAN, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, mm-hmm. Myanmar. I think the lessons from the Asian economic miracle really hold very strongly for them. They've got huge catch-up growth potential because they're poor. An economist once talked about the advantages of backwardness. Okay, they have right. that. Mm-hmm. So they have people, poor people, land, capital, shovel-ready, as it were. And if they get some basics right, the ones I mentioned, they can potentially grow anywhere between 6 and 10% a year. If you're growing at 6% plus a year because of compound growth, that mm-hmm. essentially means almost doubling living standards in a decade. Right, okay. So that's the potential, and those are the challenges mm-hmm. for the poorest countries yeah. or the poor countries in Asia. Now, I see what you mean because when you listed that larger group of what you said are called lower middle income but are actually still poor. That's such a wide variety of countries. I mean, comparing India and Bangladesh and uh, Myanmar and and Indonesia, they all have such different economies, different makeups. In a way, it's it's odd to group them together. Yes. I mean, the the one common thing they have is that they have – They're within a band of per capita incomes. Yes, lots of differences. They have different histories, different colonial legacies, different political systems, different factor endowments. Some are resource-rich, some are rich in abundant labor, and so on. Yet, I think 
one can still extract some some commonalities. Okay. They all have this catch-up growth potential. They all need to get the basics right. Now, politically, the challenges are difficult for all of them, maybe more difficult for some than others. But we see a kind of trajectory, you know, Bangladesh specializing in garments, for example, with huge development success given where it was mm -hmm. in the 1970s, is following in the footsteps of what the East Asian miracle economies did a few decades earlier. They need to diversify out of garments. Vietnam is following in the footsteps of China. China is following in the footsteps of the Northeast Asian miracle economies mm -hmm. and so on. Okay. Should we talk about the richer Asian countries then? Or sure. The, the middle yeah. income ones. This is where it gets more complicated because now here we're talking of countries with per capita incomes of between $4,000 and $12,000 per capita, according to the World Bank. And in Asia, it's basically three. Okay. It's huge China, it's Thailand in the middle, and then much smaller Malaysia. Now, what's happening with all three, again, very different countries right. and economies and societies and political systems, but what they have in common is that they're all coming closer to ex exhausting this catch-up growth. So they're coming to that frontier, they're aging societies, so fewer younger people to put into work. Mm -hmm. They're wasting a lot of capital. It's becoming much less efficient. Mm -hmm. Land is scarcer, which means in order to deliver not the kind of growth rates they had in the past, because that's impossible, but lower growth but much better quality growth, they need to improve the efficiency with which they use their resources, their land, their labor, and capital. In other words, they need to put much more emphasis on improving productivity growth. So... They're switching, though they have to switch, to a different phase of growth, which is much more productivity-based, or shall we say innovation-based. Mm -hmm. It's a question of moving from imitation to innovation, as it were. Now, that brings with it a new set of more complicated challenges. They have to get the basics right, because if they get the basics wrong, they'll just be stuck. But in addition to that, they need to do certain things, difficult things, which they didn't need to do during their catch-up growth. Example, China. What China did very successfully between 1978 and until fairly recently, 10% rates of growth per year for those three-plus decades, was to get some of those basics right, but still amidst a lot of corruption, a weak rule of law, and, of course, an authoritarian political system. So that's possible. But... When you want to move to more productivity-based growth, you really need to improve the quality of your institutions, mm -hmm. meaning the rule of law. It can't be very arbitrary and selective, clamping down on corruption, improving things like bankruptcy procedures, accountancy procedures, mm. the quality of your public administration, your regulatory agencies. Now, those are actually much more difficult to do. They're also politically more difficult. They get closer to the heart of political systems, which is why we talk of this so-called middle-income trap. Right. There's plenty of evidence that shows that countries who get the basics right make a big leap and quicker than ever before. Mm -hmm. But then they get stuck right. because they're simply not able politically and institutionally mm -hmm. to make those more difficult reforms for okay. productivity growth. Right. Everything you've described is, has been what the story of China has been as portrayed in the news and, yeah. and everything recently. That juncture that China has been at for, for a while now, they have 
exhausted a lot of that catch-up growth. They are trying to redirect their economy to higher value added things. But then along comes the trade war at the same time. And then I was also going to ask you about how you would rate President Xi's anti-corruption drive that has been okay. also in the news. Do you think it's successful or, or is it uh, window dressing? Uh, how would you rate it? Okay, so let's let's focus on China. And I think this gets us beyond the economics into political economy mm-hmm. and the heart of the political system. And let's not beat around the bush here. The dilemma is this. To get to this new phase of growth, lower but better quality growth, China needs to reform the kind of things it avoided before because it was too politically sensitive. Now, in the past, what it did was liberalize its product markets, mm-hmm. okay. like Apple electronic devices. You can do that without endangering your political system. Okay. But as the leadership admitted, it's in the report for the third plenum in 2012, for China to get out of this middle income trap and become rich, more than upper middle income, it needs to reform its land, labor, and capital markets. In other words, its factor markets. This is a whole different ballgame because it means giving individuals, farmers, for example, property rights to the land they Mm -hmm. till. It means liberalizing, opening up the capital system, banking, insurance, securities. It means liberalizing the labor market, which Mm -hmm. means eventually getting rid of the hukou system. Now, all of those things are different compared with opening up the market to Apple or GM or GE because you're talking now of trampling on vested interests at the heart of the system, which go directly to the heart of the party state all the way to the members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo and the family networks around them. So, surprise, surprise, in the last seven years since the third plenum, we have seen hardly any reforms. We've seen some baby steps. But if anything, we've seen a movement in the opposite direction. Because even though I think, especially the the technocrats in Beijing realize that these reforms are needed, they're proving to be politically very difficult, perhaps impossible, and not in the interests of the Communist Party and the state apparatus around it. So that's the key dilemma. Let's get a bit closer now to mm-hmm. core politics mm-hmm. and talk about the political system directly. And I think we have a kind of $64,000 question here. You can do catch-up growth under a variety of political systems, including hard authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. China has shown that. South Korea showed it before. Chile showed it under General Pinochet. Now, when we get to more innovation-based growth at the frontier, so far... That's been the monopoly, as it were, of liberal democracies with, shall we say, open plural societies. And in Asia, we're talking in the first instance of Australia and New Zealand, but we're also talking of Japan, South Korea and Taiwan, South Korea and Taiwan, of course, having made the transition to democracy. Hong Kong and Singapore are uh, difficult to classify, but they're not Chinese-style hard authoritarianism. They're hybrids. Now, the big question is whether China can actually make that transition, cross that bridge, to being an advanced, innovation-based economy with an authoritarian political system. And here you have a divide between optimists and pessimists. Mm -hmm. 
The optimists, including some in Singapore, say, yes, China not only can but will do this, combination of Mao and markets or Xi and markets, if you like. And indeed, it can do it better than the West because you can have centralized strategic direction. Mm -hmm. The pessimists, James Robinson and Darren Asamoglu in their two recent books, for example, say no. With this kind of system, you'll effectively block the kind of reforms needed, as I said, has been happening in China recently. And if China doesn't actually liberalize, it doesn't mean it, ne it needs a carbon copy of the West, but liberal political reforms, including more democracy, including more individual rights, and a move to a genuinely open society with free people doing innovative things, China is going to fail. It, it'll just get stuck. Mm -hmm. Where do I stand? I stand more with the pessimists. I'm much more skeptical than many in Asia about the viability of China's political economic model in the medium term, domestically, and about China's ability to lead in Asia and elsewhere as well. And I have perhaps more faith in the resilience of liberal democracies with open societies than many others have. If you're pessimistic that it's not going to work, that they're not going to make their reforms, what do you foresee happening? Do you think there will be unrest? Do you think that there will be, will it just be stagnation and just kind of a long, drawn-out malaise? I mean, what would you, what would you predict is going to happen? The answer is I don't know, so I can't, I can't make a surefire prediction. I mean, it could be any of the above on, mm -hmm. that, on that menu. China, of course, has a history of convulsions. There are trigger points when things just break down, and that leads to internal disorder and chaos. In the past, it didn't make much difference to the rest of the world because China was sealed off. Now, of course, it's different because China is so integrated and matters so much economically to the rest of the world. So if that sort of thing happens in the future, it will have systemic repercussions. And there are commentators out there, Robert Kaplan is a good recent example, who make a sort of prediction that authoritarianism in China and illiberal democracy in Russia will not succeed in providing a superior model to the West in the future, but will implode. Mm -hmm. And that implosion will spill over the border given the importance of both, and particularly the importance of China, much more so than Russia. I, I, I really don't know. I think that's a scenario, but I'm not in the business of painting what I consider to be a Panglossian scenario of China with that combination of Mao or Xi with, with markets. Well, is there anything that you want to, to leave us on as far as looking ahead? Well, looking ahead... Wait, since you asked the question, I will trespass okay. on geopolitical okay. territory. Um, Please do. <laughs> because I think having some understanding of where we were, where we are, and where we might be heading geopolitically is really important to understanding where we might be going economically. So meaning the security order, the big questions of war and peace. We had a Pax Americana in Asia, we still have to some extent, which provided the enabling conditions for the Asian economic miracle, right. in economic terms and security terms, America being the balancing power in the region. 
it seems that that order is shifting much faster than most of us anticipated even a few years ago, particularly in terms of the power shift involving the U.S. and China. I think that it leaves us with maybe three scenarios, geopolitical scenarios, but each of them have an economic corollary. Mm -hmm. So the first is continued U.S. leadership, a kind of adjusted Pax Americana, Mm -hmm. which of course would would be more multipolar. It would have to involve China and Mm -hmm. India and others. But it would be still essentially a rules-based system to keep the economic order open and stable and to keep the U.S. here both in terms of the naval presence and also with its military alliances with some countries. That's probably the best prospect for the kind of economic order I would like to see, Mm -hmm. which is why I think the United States remains the indispensable nation. If one wants that kind of scenario Mm -hmm. to materialize. The second scenario is a power shift to a Pax Sinica, in which we'll see a very different kind of leadership to what we've seen in the past, it will be much more hardcore mercantilist, not just in terms of military projection, especially the PLA Navy. But if you look at what China has been doing so far to extend its power, it's not been really about multilateral rules that, like Ulysses, tie your hands behind the mast so you don't want to head onto the rocks due to the wail of the sirens. Mm -hmm. But it's about arbitrary power. Infrastructure projects, Mm -hmm. very much behind closed doors, deals negotiated, having bilateral relations with dependent countries in a kind of 21st century version of the old tributary system. I'm Mm -hmm. half Sri Lankan. I see that in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. That also means co-opting local political and business elites. So a bigger role for the state, a more constricted role for markets, power relations that are more bilateralized. Okay transactional, less right. rules-based. Mm-hmm. Now, that has implications for all of us everywhere in Asia, including including Singapore. The third scenario is neither of the above, but we have a vacuum. And the vacuum scenario has, again, I mean, I suppose the optimist would say that you'll have regional cooperation filling that vacuum, starting with ASEAN. I find that a bit too optimistic because the problem with that kind of multipolar cooperation without a leader is that you have lots of free riders. And it's difficult to organize the cooperation to provide the requisite public goods. The the more malign scenario is that because of that vacuum, we have powers clashing with each other, ending up with more conflict and even a war system. You have hardcore realists like Professor John Mersheimer in the US who make that kind of prediction. Mm -hmm. So that's my fear about... A power vacuum right. in the region. Thank you very much for, for joining us. I really appreciate that. Pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe to the Globalization newsletter, look for the link in the description or find us on Facebook at Global Is Asian.